Before we start the podcast, I'd just like to take a few minutes to speak to you about our industry. As many of you know, COVID-19 has brought the live event industry to its knees. In the U.S., this industry employs 12 million people and contributes $877 billion to the country's GDP. Millions and millions of us have lost our income and our livelihood through no fault of our own. 77% of the industry has lost 100% of its work. We were the first to shut down, and we will be the last to come back. And right now, we're barely staying afloat, and we need your help. Please, 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 contact your representatives in Washington, D.C. Tell them they need to extend pandemic unemployment assistance, and they need to pass the Restart Act. This bill will provide our industry with financial assistance, which we so desperately need. Visit WeMakeEvents.org or SaveOurStages.com for more information and a convenient way to contact your political representatives with ease. Please help us keep the lights on. The electricity or the real, the thing that gets me excited about going to work every morning is my role in connecting an artist to audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talk About the Industry. Today, my guest is the fantastic Laura Sweet. Laura Sweet serves as the Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Des Moines Performing Arts. Prior to joining DMPA eight years ago, she was the VP for the Ordway in St. Paul, Minnesota, and was the Associate Executive Director of the University of Nebraska's Lead Center for Performing Arts in Lincoln, Nebraska. Laura is currently on the Red Cross Board of Directors for Central Iowa and is past president of the Nexus Executive Women's Leadership Alliance. She serves as the chair of the Association of Venue Managers Performing Arts Managers Committee, participates on the PASS Performing Arts Safety Security Committee, and completed the IAVM three-year Senior Executive Leadership Symposium at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. She is on the Association of Performing Arts Professionals, APAP, Conference Program Committee. She has been the co-chair of the APAP New College Orientation Program for the last seven years and has presented sessions on safety security at APAP at the last three conferences. Laura has a Master of Arts and a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the University of Kansas, respectively. Welcome, Laura Sweet. Well, thank you, Mr. Miller. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm very excited to bring you on. Uh, as I was saying before we hit record, I think arts administrators have uh, such a vast and important section of the industry. And I think for the lay person, it might be sexy to think of like the performer or the person running the soundboard. But like nobody thinks about how everyone got in the room. And as someone who is engaged to an arts administrator, of course, I'm a little biased, but I think the the roles are really important um, and they're we don't cheer for them enough uh, is one way to put it. So I'm so glad that you're here. Let's start by talking a little bit about what you're doing right now and how you kind of fit into the industry. And then I'd love to go back and talk about the origins of Laura Sweet. Sure. Well, it's an interesting time to be in our industry and I think in particular, you know, the the pandemic has 
um, really changed a lot of things for the short run and the long run. I think yeah. we won't be restarting or reanimating our theaters in the same way that they were, you know, yeah. a year ago. And some of that's for the better and some of it's um, still in kind of a place that feels uncertain and scary. But so today yeah. the focus is a little different than it has been, you know, on, on a more normal basis. But I think um, we're still doing you know, the key mission things for Des Moines Performing Arts, we have four mm -hmm. venues. So we're just still trying to stay relevant in our community and trying to, you know, the arts play such a role, yeah. uh, whether you're talking about a performing arts center in Des Moines or a university performing arts center or an art gallery or a civic orchestra, we are essential and we play a role in how uh, communities survive things like challenges with um, the pandemic and even yeah. grow for things like civil. Uh, I, I mean, we've had this awakening, such an important awakening. And I think we have yeah. an important role to play on. So what am I doing now? It's sort of different every day, but um, <laughs> it's still all, it's, it's all <laughs> primarily good things, even if yeah. they're kind of hard at times. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can imagine. Um, I love that you brought up uh, how important arts are in the community uh, you know, I think one thing that's very easy to forget is the value add from uh, from a venue, from, uh, as you say, whether it's as small as a little neighborhood art gallery or as large as something like the Des Moines Performing Arts Organization. I think it's easy for people to say, oh, there's value added if I, you know, uh, sort of emotionally, uh, uh, if I get to go and see a world class ballet company, maybe. But they might not think about, you know, what the arts do. Uh, financially or, you know, uh, uh, the positive effects that aren't just what you get in the moment in the theater, let's say. Right, right. It's more than entertainment and the economic impact on communities is really substantial. So, yeah, true facts, sir. Well, let's um, let's back up and talk about uh, how you got interested in arts administration at all and how you sort of got led to what is uh, I mean, you're very casual about it, but is a really outstanding career. I mean, you're, it's, you have a really impressive resume. It's, it's a little intimidating. Well, I think, I mean, the interesting thing about reflecting on my life as it connects to the arts is, yeah. um, I think all of us as kids are, uh, in one way or another tethered to some aspect of performance. And yeah. for me, I was, you know, at, as a young kid, as an only child, uh, with my friends, I remember we staged a production of Sound of Music in the park in the neighborhood. And um, <laughs> as soon as I could, I started um, playing musical instruments. I play the flute and still do. And then eventually the piccolo. And I think that a lot of people that find themselves eventually in a career in arts administration are themselves uh, mediocre performers or <laughs> uh, people that uh, are are attracted to the arts for the right reasons. So yeah. my personal journey kind of came through uh, a musical side and I was yeah. in choirs and I was in the band and then the orchestra, Lincoln Youth Symphony. Okay. Uh, and then I went off to, to college and I, I wasn't a major or a minor, obviously in performance, but I still, I played with the University of Kansas marching band for four years and oh, I great. played in orchestras and still you know, get my flute out, my piccolo less, but um, yeah. and mostly anymore for things like funerals and weddings. But uh, yeah. it's still still a part of my life, that musical connection. And I think that's how I eventually found myself. I, I've always had it as part of my life. I guess. 
Yes. Yeah. That's wonderful. As the child of two former opera singers, I can definitely relate to how music. Uh, I think it, I think it makes your childhood different, just in a in a really wonderful way. Um, I still have uh, uh, a tenor sax uh, in the basement somewhere, uh, and I too was a marching band uh, geek, and I and I say geek um, with all the pride and love in my heart. That's right. It was so fun. There's a um, lot of us out there. There are. Well, and and I think that's another really um, important point to sort of focus on, which is that arts education matters. Not every piccolo player is going to go and become an arts administrator, right? But they are going to take that appreciation with them. They're also going to take uh, the, uh, you know, like different brain chemistry and structure, all the positive benefits that you get trying to be creative and also technical that go with music education or, you know, all the different synapses that are firing when you're, you know, when you're uh, studying dance or music. It is as to me, I think it's so important. It should be part of the core education uh, rather than seen as, you know, something on the periphery, just like performance is to adults. It's not just bringing joy. It's also, you know, a value add as far as uh, as far as learning different concepts and learning how to work with people and, you know, how to be part of a whole as you achieve something greater than yourself. Yeah, I, I could geek out about music education for a while. but <laughs> Yeah, no, I, it's super important. And I think you're right. I think we have to imagine a future where we can continue um, or at least not let slide further the commitment of arts in K-12 education and just... Yep. Um, I, you know, I think that the Montessori philosophy for little kids in terms of learning by doing and anything you can, if you hand a kid a pot and a spoon, mm -hmm. they're going to figure out that they can make noise with it. So I think yeah. it's just continuing to allow that, um, you know, a lot of us unfortunately turn off the creative um, side of our brain too early and don't allow for that. As you know, really important things happen when you allow yourself creative expression and problem solving and you know, yeah. all, all the good things that come with, with that uh, yeah. early childhood development. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. I, I, I always sort of think about creative endeavors in the same way that I think about, um, as far as mental and physical health, in the same way I think about uh, exercise. You know, the more, the more people study it, the more hidden benefits that sort of come to the surface, you know. Oh, it helps with learning. It helps you sleep better. It helps with finger dexterity. It helps with creative problem solving. It helps with teamwork and and unspoken communication. You know, all of that stuff. Um, it's great, and it's and it's and we and we keep saying music specifically because that because we both had educational experiences that center around music. But it's also dance. It's also uh, studio art. It's also you know all forms of what we would consider the performing arts. I'm you know they're really. They're really useful. They're really valuable. All the things. Yep. Yeah. And my, my grandfather was a classical uh, violinist. He oh, played wow. in Minnesota and Wisconsin orchestras. And he taught himself the classical guitar. And I think wow. um, families that have a connection to music can sort of continue um, continue that easier than family. But there's there's inroads for music, especially to your point. Um, yeah. And, and movement, dance, you know. For, yeah, sure. For a lot of us. So. Yeah, that's wonderful. Anyway, I it's <laughs> been part of my life, but I studied journalism. I think I always knew mm. um, while I had an interest in the arts. Um, yeah. 
I didn't yet as a young person understand how to make a connection between what I knew I was good at and interested mm-hmm. in uh, for a potential profession yeah. and how to, to connect that back to arts. So I studied um, advertising at University of Kansas and I had a uh, internship at Bailey Lowerman, which was oh, okay. uh, an ad agency in my hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. And yeah. I started working there when I was 14. Oh, wow. And <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't have a driver's license. So I was um, <laughs> doing errands on foot and um, sharpening pencils for their pencil caddies and filling the pot machine. And How funny. <laughs> but so off I went to KU to be a Jayhawk and um, yeah. march in the band, but also study journalism. Yeah, oh. that's wonderful. I, I want to highlight this for a minute just because when we talk about arts education, you know, so I think so many people come to that crossroads in their life that you came to and thought like, well, I really love this thing, but I don't see a career in it. Mm-hmm. So rather than sort of uh, sweep it under the rug or set it to the side, it stayed a part of your life and ultimately did inform your career somehow. I guess I guess I see a lot of uh, kids that are leaving high school or even college and they think, I don't know what I'll do if I can't be a performer. And, mm-hmm. and they don't, you know, they think of it as one or the other. You can study the arts, you can have a love for the arts, but then also go and do something else. And, you know, one can inform the other. And to me, that's that's that decision, I think, should be highlighted because that's what you did. And ultimately, ob- some obvious positive benefit to both your life and your career. Well, and just by virtue of my age, I didn't start college at a time where I had the benefit of uh, exposure to what a lot of people have today, which is the opportunity to study at arts admin at a university level. Oh. Uh, and I think so much, uh, there's so many strong programs with arts admin out there. Yeah. And I have colleagues here in Des Moines who, you know, who graduated with that as their degree. Yeah. And to think that that would have been something that's out there. Um, because to me, and I think for most of us that are arts managers, mm-hmm. uh, the electricity or the real, the thing that gets me excited about going to work every yeah. morning, not in a pandemic, yeah, story, well, but yeah. is my role in connecting an artist to audience. Yeah. Like I have a good friend who's an opera singer, opera star. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm, um, his mm-hmm. name is Zachary James. Okay. And just thinking about how, you know, there there's a part of what I do that allows thousands of people to see people like Zach on yeah. stage. It's just, yeah. to me, it's the best ever. It's the coolest yeah. job ever. Everybody should want to be an arts admin. <laughs> I like that. Everyone should want to be an arts admin. It is, it is the coolest job ever. Um, uh, uh, except for lighting design, but that's okay. <laughs> well, except your, your point is correct in that yeah. we, uh, there's so many different careers that support that moment on the stage, right? Right. We need yeah. A great accountant. We need a great, obviously great marketers. We need mm-hmm. people to build sets. We need people to do costumes and lighting design. And yeah. we need yeah. like, there's so many different connections to making that, uh, artistic moment happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I love getting your perspective because arts administrators to me feel like kind of the um, almost like a magnet uh, as far as uh, as being able to see that, you know, it's very easy to be a lighting designer or uh, an audio engineer or a wardrobe supervisor and, you know, only look at lighting or audio or or it's also similarly easy to be an accountant and not and only look at money, whereas the arts administrator is. Uh, all of the good ones that I know, yourself included, 
have that, they get excited about making that moment happen. You almost have to because you're really in kind of the center of the vortex there where like if your role doesn't exist, and it's part of the reason I was so excited to have you on, if your role doesn't exist, then that moment doesn't really happen. It does. It takes a lot more people than an an average audience member might be aware of to have that experience happen. Yeah. You know, the thing is, it's meaningful for the audience, but it's also it's um, it's like water for a performer. Like it's an essential part of who they are too. their DNA is um, their talent is something that they have to to share. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Agreed. So, uh, uh, so you're at KU, you're studying journalism, uh, you're marching in the marching band, um, and you're working at Bailey Lowerman and you, you then, uh, ended up back in Lincoln, uh, after school and then ended up doing a master's work at UNL. Um, were you, was this before, uh, you were working at the lead center in earnest? Yeah. So what happened was, um, I went to work full time at Bailey Lowerman like the yeah. day after graduation. And That's I was great. super happy there and knew I would retire from Bailey Lowerman because <laughs> it was what I yeah. always planned to do. Yeah. Um, but I had an account list as an account executive where, you know, I had half a dozen accounts that worked, you know, I, I handled all aspects of our relationship. And sure. uh, one of my favorite accounts, uh, you know, yeah. I had a handful of them that were in one way or another connected to things I liked, but yeah, uh, yeah. there was one of my accounts. Oh, cool. When their marketing person decided to take a new opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, the executive director, Charles Bethay, yeah. uh, said, you know, you should apply for this job. And I said, you know, I've always, I'm staying, advertising is my, you know, it's my world. And yeah, um, yeah. I, then I had this call with my best friend, Katie, Mm-hmm. And I told her, like, this was really flattering that Charles thought to reach out to me to see if I'd be interested for this position. And yeah. And and I said, but of course, you know, I'm going to retire from Bailey Lowerman. And this phone was just <laughs> silent. Like Katie, <laughs> who known me since I was a tiny little girl, oh, man. Um, said, really? And in that <laughs> moment, I heard in her voice, like, I... I I made I, I made a big mistake. I, that was not right. I, that was not what I should have done. Isn't so it great I how best friends can do that? Yeah, and you know who's the head of the search committee? Dan Stratton. Oh my god, <laughs> our mutual friend. Matt. Yeah. So oh, I love Dan. The process had gone through uh, mm-hmm. through the university, and they mm-hmm. had not been happy with any of the finalists. Yeah. And yeah. so they closed the search. Mm-hmm. About that time, uh, I had a couple phone calls through with Charles and then Dan, mm-hmm. and they ended up without me even interviewing. <laughs> they appointed me as an interim. Oh, sure. And yeah. I started working at the lead center, and then I was there for eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So how fun. Yeah, and it was while I was there I got my master's degree. From yeah. The, when you're working for a university and a university for arts center, it's kind of a yeah a real easy thing. I both taught through the J school and also. Oh, great. That's great. And that's of course where we met when I was, I was an intern, a production intern at the lead center when we first met. How funny. Well, and it's interesting to think um, about the incredible, um, one of the things that Charles was fantastic at was uh, inspiring uh, young people to find connections to the arts and also to encourage them as he did for me to yeah. find roles in leadership. And, you know, I think Matt about other um, young colleagues that I had the benefit to work with and mm-hmm. Christina yeah. Brownhall works for Telsey. 
one yeah. of the, the world's biggest talent agencies. Yeah. You know, Paul Turnus, you know, the list is really long for people yeah. that um, started at the Lead Center and now Laura Kendall. And I hope yeah. you get a chance on uh, your podcast to talk to Laura Kendall, who is the smarter and much more <laughs> talented and accomplished Laura of the two of us. But um, I think, you know, in terms of leadership lessons, Charles taught me about really being sure to be a servant leader and showing up and giving people around you the chance to learn and grow. So you are yeah. um, one of the many people that I've met and learned from because of, of that commitment that he had. So. Yeah. Well, that's lovely to say that. I, I do think Charles uh, was an excellent, um, was excellent in that role and, and also just like a super nice person, uh, you know, sort of anecdotally, when I started the podcast and sent some emails around, you know, you sent a note to a few folks that included Charles and he, you know, took the time to write back and say, this is really great, blah, blah, blah. I'm so happy to see that you've, you know, uh, done this thing right now in this difficult time. And, you know, and we talked a little bit about how he was enjoying retirement and, you know, it's just like that ex that little extra. And I, I see it in really good leaders. I, you know, you and Laura and Charles, <clears throat> excuse me, all have that kind of, you know, we'll take an extra four minutes to let this person know that they're doing a great job. And that goes a long way. Um, it really does. I don't think there's much that's more important than helping um, cultivate interest in leaders for a future. You know, it's. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think Charles is he's a lifelong mentor for that. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So, um, so eight years in, uh, in the lead center, were you ever, uh, were you ever like, I'll retire from the lead center or, or had it already? As soon as I, yeah, as soon as I started <laughs> working for Charles and, you know, Charles was just enough older than me that, you know, he was really cultivating in me that, yeah. you know, he was going to pass the baton to me and I was going to keep the lead yeah. center, uh, moving into the future. And you know what, Matt, it was one of those things where, um, I was definitely going to retire from Bailey Lowerman. And, you know, yeah. from my first moments at the lead center, I thought I am definitely retiring from here. My yeah. grandparents yeah. had helped build the building, you know, as original oh, wow. owners and funders. And, yeah. you know, it was my dad worked at Nebraska bookstore, which was actually on the property where the lead center eventually um, yeah. built. There's just a lot of my DNA that was in that, yeah. that community in that part of, of downtown. But as often happens at universities, there was mm -hmm. a change in the chancellor and the reporting structure and yeah. Charles left. And then it presented me with an opportunity because the it wasn't in that moment to be that I was just because of when the transition happened, it wasn't yeah. a natural uh, connection to just move me into position. And I was told yeah. uh, that I should stick around in the role to support the person who was uh, named as the leader, which was. Uh, I knew that I could do that successfully, but I also started um, listening when I was getting recruiter phone calls. I actually yeah. you know, started to think, well, maybe I could leave my hometown. And, yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's when I eventually, through, the, through a couple different recruiters who reached out to me, mm -hmm. the timing worked out. And I found myself, uh, ironically, with two positions that I was considering Minnesota. And mm. uh, my youngest daughter was... Uh, graduating from high school and about to leave for college. And so oh, wow. Mike and I decided, hey, you know, for the first time as adults, maybe it's a good time for us to try leaving Nebraska. 
So yeah, off yeah. we went to St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, also a place that's very, uh, very polite and very cold in the winter. <laughs> yes, even colder than Nebraska. So we oh, had man. that going for us. Yeah, yeah. I used to think Nebraska was uh, was cold. Then I moved to Chicago, and then I went on tour to Minnesota in uh, at, in like December. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Uh, so the Ordway Center now is there. Was there programming similar to the Lead Center? You know, the programming was similar. What I loved about my experience at the Ordway, in addition to working for Patricia Mitchell, who, mm. like Charles, was uh, both a mentor and became a close friend who I've oh, stayed great. in touch with. Um, great. But what the Ordway did that was different and I learned a lot from was they were a producing house. Mm. So what that, as you know, means, Matt, is that yeah. I became exposed to a whole different part of the industry. So I learned about yeah casting and costuming and set design and you know a, a show would come in and sit down in yeah. on our stage at, at the Ordway for a longer period of time which meant you had different um, exposure to the the cast and the sure. it's just a different it, it truly was and it, the budget was exponentially larger so it was yeah. Um, yeah. a great opportunity for me to learn a new segment of the industry right and yeah. world music and dance was still something they were presenting uh, and I got to work with the arts partners, which mm. in the move then eventually from Minnesota to Des Moines, mm -hmm. um, there was a real understanding about what it's like to have uh, organizations share a stage as their home base. So yeah. that Ordway really got it right in terms of their partnership with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and yeah. the Minnesota Opera. I mean, so that was a cool deal to learn about. That's great. That's really great. Yeah, I think... Uh, uh, often we uh, it's it's easy to look at a place like at a performing arts center on a college campus uh, or anywhere really and say like oh well they're just a venue for people to come in and out of and uh, you know whereas the lead center i think was kind of more traditionally a roadhouse where most of the shows are coming in and it's already a finished product and they're really looking to you know the lead center is really looking at their mission statement and saying, okay, we want, you know, we want some ballet, we want some contemporary dance, we want some, uh, some, uh, internationally renowned, uh, solo singer, uh, stars, uh, whether it's in music or personalities, you know, we want, we want a lecture series, we want, uh, a handful of Broadway musical tours and they're presenting a season based on what they think their audience wants, but, you know, it gets, uh, I don't want to say murky. It gets um, uh, more interesting and more challenging at an organization like the Ordway, where it's a combination, right? Where you you're bringing in shows, but also you're producing shows. So I think to me that's the most dynamic um, environment for an arts administrator to be in because they have to be, you know, almost thinking with two different hats on. And there were a couple things that happened in Minnesota. Uh, in addition to that producing piece that really felt distinctive, Matt. And one yeah. of them was uh, through the Wallace Foundation, we got some funding to work with a company uh, that I, I bet you've had intersection with called Diavolo, which is a, yeah. a dance company. And Diavolo, what we did is we connected them to the University of St. Thomas and uh, to McAllister. And we worked with okay. engineering students and dance students. Oh, whoa. And we put them together to develop set pieces. And I mean, it was this really... <laughs> um, 
the, the combination of engineering and movement mm-hmm. uh, with this amazing company, Diablo. Yeah, yeah um, great. It, it was fantastic. And so, you know, obviously, in addition to the um, more traditional presenting and producing, sure. having opportunities like that. And the other mm-hmm. thing we did that was uh, at the time really became important to me personally and professionally is we had a woman named Robin Hickman from St. Mm-hmm. Paul who uh, started with us a a program called Taking Our Place Center Stage. And it was an attempt to help the Ordway be more inclusive. And it was was the beginnings Mm -hmm. of an idea now, which Mm -hmm. we're all trying to take more seriously, which is EDI initiatives across the country. Um, So Robin really helped me uh, get my feet underneath me about, you know, she was my initial uh, course in yeah. white privilege and yeah. you know, how to, how to think more broadly about um, being collaborative and working more inclusively. So sure. anyway, those are things that happen in Minnesota. That's wonderful. Yeah. Four yeah. years and fast, but it was, was <laughs> And now a message from our sponsors. Hi there. Are you a discerning podcast listener in need of professional voiceover assistance? Can you make use of a mellifluous baritone talent that has the warm, sexy presence of a dad bod and the gritty realism of a basket of sand? Maybe you're a flannel shirt salesman, developing bar soap that smells like gravy, or running a focus group for hats made of weasel fabric. Then you're in luck. Look no further than talk about the industry's very own Matt Miller. Matt has the amazing ability to sit in front of a microphone and read words on a page in exactly the order in which they're written. Practically any words at all. Using a patented combination of unholy acting talent and sheer financial desperation, Matt can deliver a professional-grade voiceover product to you for the low, low price of basically any amount of money. Holy cow! Recording a lecture on anti-disestablishmentarianism? No problem! Writing a book describing the medical functions of allomucilaginous polysaccharides? Sounds great! Or maybe you're knee-deep in multisyllabic terminology like pseudopod, philanderer, or dodecagon. Easy as pie. Or how about gesticulation, impignorate, or perfunctory? Amazing! Wow! Simply hop on over to the old computer desk and send an electronic mail to talkaboutheindustrypodcast at gmail.com with the subject heading, Attention Matt, Free Money. And you can be sure we'll respond to your request in record time. And if you'd like to hear more of Matt's smooth, smooth baritone, head on over to voplanet.com slash matt-miller for samples of his actual voiceover work. We're really not kidding. Or simply, you can continue listening to this episode of Talk About the Industry, the podcast, where we can virtually guarantee Matt won't be able to keep his mouth shut. Thanks again for listening. And now, back to the show. So then the, the opportunity in Des Moines, uh, was, it, was it also a recruiter call or... Yeah, I think, I mean, the interesting thing about arts admin jobs is mm-hmm. we do have a tendency to move around a little bit. Yeah. And um, unlike the lead center in Bailey Lowerman, mm-hmm. I never had that strong feeling like I'm going to retire from the Ordway. I loved my experience sure. and learned yeah. so much from Patricia and others like Robin yeah. uh, in yeah. the city. But the recruiter called and much the same 
as when I told my best friend, Katie Pearson, mm. uh, that the lead center had called and I had said no. Mm. Uh, I came home from work one day and said to my husband, Mike, the a recruiter called for the job in Des Moines, mm. but Des Moines. So, of course, I said, no, I wasn't interested. And there was a similar silence when Mike said, really? Because um, I don't know, Matt. I mean, I think all of us that grew up in places where there's um, a bias around other cities regionally, like yeah. I grew up thinking that, that you know, Nebraska wasn't that cool, but certainly we were cooler than <laughs> Iowa. You know, there's just this weird, yeah, you know, and Regional, some of that, yeah. yeah, collegiate sports doesn't help that. But as an arts yeah. kid, I shouldn't have had a chip on my shoulder about Iowa being less cool. But yeah. so similar conversation sure. um, with Mike, as I had years before with Katie meant that I ended up sheepishly calling the recruiter back and saying, Tell me a little bit more about that opportunity in Des Moines, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Here I am. Yeah, and here you are. And and for eight years you've been in Des Moines, is that right? Yeah, going on nine. Wow. Oh, good for you. It goes fast. And the, th yeah. the cool thing about the job here in Des Moines is um, I really pivoted. Yeah, and, <laughs> there it is again. <laughs> uh, the eye rolls. You yeah. can't all see my eye roll, but uh, I ended up, my my job is a lot more focused in operations. Mm. And I'm a person who continually, I like to be learning new things and trying yeah. and doing new things. And um, what it's allowed me to do is grow into um, construction oversight and safety yeah. security programs and just yeah. learning more about um the operational side of our industry that I hadn't been really exposed to before. So that was, that's yeah. been a really interesting uh, chapter for my arts management career. Sure. Well, in, in particular uh, with Des Moines Performing Arts Society, because of four venues, the Coles Commons, which is our outdoor block uh, uh -huh, was a uh -huh. huge project. And we renovated it. Like my, as I was joining Des Moines Performing Arts, we oh, were no. just beginning to renovate a city block outdoor block. And I knew oh, nothing wow. about, Fountain infrastructure and concrete, you know, like painting yeah. and uh, yeah. previous, you know, all these things were such a learning curve for me. But yeah. Uh, yeah. to your point, having four venues, one of which is an outdoor block, was mm -hmm. uh, a great challenge and opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And obviously, you've done incredibly well at it. Uh, and and uh, and in Des Moines is where I got to run into you again later on in in, in my life. Which was so fun to sort of like, oh, yeah, I, well, when we met, I was a production intern, and now I'm touring with an internationally renowned dance company to this really lovely venue. The world is wonderfully small. Yeah. And, with, and the great thing is, you know, our work has together, you and I found each other mm -hmm. in New York City more than once together. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Let's talk a little bit more about that, because I, APAP is definitely something that you've been sort of really active in. It's also in the industry, I feel like pretty much everyone knows what APAP is, but I think about how Marissa stumbled upon it and how I stumbled upon it and how very different it is. You know, Marissa, who actually did get uh, an arts admin degree, uh, I think right as the program was starting at IU, you know, she was introduced to APAP as, uh, uh, when she was an intern. And so it was always this sort of thing. And I when I was introduced to APAP, we were like, you know, taking a small dance show there. And I was like, I have no idea why this is important, but everyone, every, literally everyone's here. <laughs> yeah. From my, you know, first years at the lead center, I was super mm -hmm. involved with APAP and yeah. 
you know, APAP, the Association of Performing Arts Professionals, right. used to be presenters. Now they have been more inclusive and use the term professionals. But APAP is for our industry. It's an organization that really serves programming, marketing, mm-hmm. and executive management. Gotcha. Um, and I've continued to be involved with APAP, even though now that I have a job that's more operational, yeah. I have found my way into the International Association of Venue Managers family. <laughs> yeah. And IVM is this similarly international organization, but it really yeah. it doesn't serve the programming piece as much as it serves the operational side of it. So gotcha. I would encourage anybody that has an interest in the industry to look at these those two industry organizations. And also, obviously, there's... Uh, organizations connected specifically to art forms like dance um, and orchestra. And, you know, if you, you also get into specializations, like I've always had the benefit of working with uh, smart colleagues in my ticket office uh, world. And there's uh, Intex, which is specifically for ticketing professionals. And, (laughs) you know, so there's a bunch of different um, industry organizations that help not just with training, but also keeping people like me connected from Mm -hmm. uh, across different parts of the, and, you know, the international association venue managers, I'm this year, I'm the chair, Mm -hmm. the two-year position for the performing arts sector. So for all of the performing arts centers, I serve as the chairperson. And during a pandemic, it's been an interesting time because we have (laughs) biweekly town halls where we'll we'll have a couple hundred people from across the country and with some Canadians and some people from other uh, parts of the world involved too, talking about best practices for getting through things like a pandemic. And yeah, so yeah, I can't think of a, a, a time where it would be more important. I mean, Case in point, uh, uh, the state of Illinois versus the state of Nebraska versus the state of Florida have all all have, you know, major performing arts centers in them and all have wildly different uh, local and state laws that have come into effect during the pandemic. Having an organization like that, somebody who's in Illinois can really learn from somebody in Florida and vice versa because they're either playing in the same sandbox, but with a different set of tools almost. That's right. That's right. For sure. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And I, I think also uh, definitely reflective of your character and your personality to want to stay connected and to want to stay connected to organizations that allow um, not just discussion, but also, you know, some mentorship and allow the industry to sort of collectively try and continue to improve. Well, and my two favorite roles in each of those organizations for mm-hmm. APAP. For many years, I've been the new colleague orientation co-chair. So along with an artist, um, I've had the privilege of getting to meet all these new people to our industry, many of which are young professionals, but some of which are, you know, still in college or aspirational artists. Uh, So that's been wonderful to be able to introduce, you know, several hundred people a year to that conference and that community. Yeah. Similarly, um, with IBM, I think one of my favorite roles or hats I've been able to wear is as mentor, but yeah. I will tell you, and you will believe and know to be true that I learned as much from, uh, the, the, so far it's been women, the women that have been assigned to me as mentee, yeah. uh, as I have taught them as mentors. So yeah. I have two mentees right now, which, you know, continue to inspire and challenge me in really meaningful ways. So. That's wonderful. That's really yeah. great. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that 
organizations like IAVM and APAP would continue to exist if there wasn't also, you know, if it was only responsibility and, and not also, you know, a, a sort of a, a two-way positive exchange. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, before we move past your education, um, Cornell, question mark? Yeah. <laughs> this is really so, interesting. It, it's a really interesting program. So IVM mm -hmm. has a couple different um, credential programs, certification yep. programs. So like yep. if you didn't have the ability and opportunity to study arts admin, yep. they have sort of a track for um, – younger professionals, people new to industry, mm -hmm. and they also have a track for people that are executive level. So certified oh, venue executive yeah. and certified venue professional. So professional is maybe first five to 10 years in industry and gotcha. uh, certified venue executive is a program for those um, more seasoned uh, arts administration professionals. However, the other thing they offered was this multi-year program where you would go to Cornell, which Cornell yeah. in Ithaca, New York is known for many amazing things. Mm -hmm. uh, one of which is they have a great hotel program with customer service. Oh, okay. um, and so what they did is IVM partnered with Cornell to start mm -hmm. this multi-year program where they took um, regional professors from Harvard, Boston University, from all these oh, wow. um, universities that teach management, so I was part of a class of around, I think, 30-ish each mm -hmm. year. Um, and the idea was that you'd stay with that same class for all three yeah. years. So there was a little bit of, you know, some people weren't able to make the three consecutive year thing work. Yeah. But I went yeah. to campus for a week. Okay, great. Moved into, <laughs> can't, I didn't live in a dorm, moved into my hotel, my fancy hotel room. But yeah, we yeah. learned from these um really fantastic experts in their field and industry. Yeah. And it was across sectors. So we were um, executives from other kinds of venues, all still venues. So we had that as something in common. Um, but it was a three-year program. And we touched on everything from, you know, HR issues to customer service to, mm. you know, nuts and bolts around operation. I mean, it was just really, yeah. it was like a graduate degree in one week, <laughs> increments for three years and it was oh, really wow. it was great it was really yeah. a, a neat opportunity so how fun well and i'm sure that that also helped better prepare you uh uh for the the operations responsibilities that you have uh in demand yeah. and yeah. yeah and we all i think all of us um i think it's important to continue to learn new things and learn from others and so certainly that scratches the itch for me in terms of um being an opportunity to you know, challenge what we've been doing and think about yeah. greater things going forward. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more as far as uh, continuing to learn. My, my mother said this to me, uh, years ago, she's said, and, and she still says it today. And she says it to all of her students as well, that sort of the future is going to belong to lifelong learners. And that the emphasis of an education should not just be to, provide you with information, but also to provide you with, uh, to, to give you an understanding of how to learn and, mm -hmm. and so that you can right. continue that, uh, in the rest of your career and also your life. And I've always tried to think of it that way. And it certainly helped me. I mean, even just the process of understanding that there are more things to learn about what you're doing, even just opening that little window in your mind 
already, you know, you'd have a, a vastly different and more positive career with, uh, you know, just opening that window and, and understanding that there's always something else to learn and always something else to help you. Well, and there's an interesting through line in what you're saying with, mm-hmm. um, we, we've kind of had a theme throughout our conversation around yeah. the role of the arts and how, um, this is a pandemic and yeah. it's changing the way a lot of parts of our society are interacting together. But yeah. something that's consistent both today and will be tomorrow mm-hmm. is there will always be a need for people to come together with an artistic connection. And yeah. when you think about recession proof jobs or jobs that can see their way through um, the the changing technology focus, like robots yeah. Cannot be performed. Like yeah, the, the yeah. simple fact is, and more and more large companies are realizing that there's a benefit to mm-hmm. having people that think creatively and think um, with with a focus around um, brainstorming, and problem solving, and that's something that yeah. you know robots can't do. So yeah. all that to say, <laughs> as we continue to learn, I think it's it for people like us in our industry. I think it's great mm-hmm. to remember that what we have is something that's irreplaceable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could not agree more. Um, I don't often think of it as, you know, being recession proof, although I should, considering this is now the second, quote unquote, once in a lifetime financial crisis of my <laughs> of my career. And I'm and I'm not quite 40. Uh, <laughs> so there's a long way to go still. Uh, but yeah, I, I it's been an interesting conversation. I've seen uh, I've read a little bit in the media. I've seen uh, on the corporate side too, you know, I, I do a lot of corporate events for, uh, particularly for large scale clients like Microsoft and, uh, you know, and these sort of tech giants and they in particular are all, you know, we need, we need creative thinkers. We need people that understand communication, you know, because they're, and they're trying to do, they're trying to do very difficult things. And, and when you're a Microsoft or, uh, or a Verizon or a Google or one of those, you have the luxury of a cash, but b being able to sort of take your pick from a wide pool, and and what sets people apart when they're being recruited is is maybe not what <laughs> maybe not what we think. You know, it's not. And I had that experience in my career as well. When I left my uh, when I left undergrad, I was so worried about uh, do I understand the lighting software correctly and you know, I've never lit uh, in an orchestra setting before. Somebody's going to find out and it'll it'll hurt me. I should, you know, like, or I, I haven't lit for camera before or any of that sort of stuff. And it's, and what I have found, and thankfully I learned it a little earlier maybe than some because I had really good mentors. Uh, what I learned was people care a lot less about how do you run this software and a lot more about what do you like in the actual room? Yeah. You know, what are your conversations like? Do you respond well to criticism? Do you are you calm when things are stressful? You know, all of that stuff goes goes so much farther than just the thing that you learned in four years at a university. Well, and I bet you would agree. You know, Charles gave me a chance, even yeah. though I didn't have necessarily, and I, I didn't have an arts admin degree, and I didn't yeah. have. I think it does come down to you know, the soft skills and trusting people. And I did not mean to imply that the arts is recession proof because we are getting oh. kicked in the pants in the biggest <laughs> way possible. Yeah. But yeah. I think my point is that as challenging as work in a theater can be, especially during a time like a pandemic, yeah. there's still an undeniable 
uh, the theater will endure. Like as long as there's been humans, there's been a need to come together in in this sort of way. So we're going to figure we're scrappy. I guess that's more (laughs) what I was trying to say. We're we're finding our own path through. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I think, I think, uh, uh, you're right. Um, the, the arts certainly are not recession proof, but the, the skills that they provide us are. That's right. That's yeah. right. I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your role as a mentor and a mentee. Um, as a straight white dude, uh, I recognize that my life is quite easy in comparison to many folks. And I want to talk a little bit about how being a woman has affected your career as far as um, things being more or more or less difficult. Also, uh, it sounds like you've done some really great work, um, not just with um, diversity and equity and inclusion, but also just sort of trying to promote uh, leadership and trying to uh, sort of give the next generation a path to leadership. Did you, is that something that sort of started with your relationship with Charles or is that just something that's always been kind of inherent in you? Well, I'm, I've, I've never been shy about sharing my opinion. And I think yeah. something that I've had to develop in addition to being very comfortable sharing my opinion yeah. is I've hopefully developed and will continue to prioritize developing mm-hmm. being an empathic listener. Mm. And I think because of my inability to not stick my hand out to volunteer for <laughs> different positions that included yeah. putting me in positions that gave me more privilege and power. Mm. Okay. What I've tried to do as I have had opportunities in the industry, I've tried to, and not just in the industry, but in different parts of my life, right? Like yeah. I've tried to not only reach out, I've also tried to reach next to me and think about how to pull forward women or community, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. about broadly about my community, thinking about um, people that need more of a shove. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of people that have great gifts and talents to share and those of us that have the platform, it's really our responsibility to not just be mentors, but to, mm-hmm. to not leave it at that. Not just to say, you know, I have time on my calendar with two young professionals, but to really think meaningfully about how to make tomorrow's leaders in our industry and in our world look a lot different than they are today. Right. Yeah. And look in, in all the different ways that diversity can mean. Yeah, yeah. I I really like that perspective. It really resonates with me when you talk about sort of reaching to the side and giving people maybe a, a shove in the direction of opportunity that that otherwise they wouldn't. I, I've always mm-hmm. thought of it in my career as sort of, you know, I got to give credit where credit is due. And when a job opportunity comes up that somebody I know might be good for, but maybe isn't as loud as I am, you know, <laughs> I, I inevitably find myself going, oh, no, Sam would be good for this or Julie would be good for that. And for me, that motivation comes from these might be people that I had a really positive experience with 
you know, in a learning scenario, in a professional scenario. But I think you're right. If the responsibility is is for those that have the opportunity to open up a path for a colleague, because if not, then it's only going to be the people like us that stick our hands out and and speak loudly that get the opportunities. And then that becomes kind of a narrow field at the top. And I think for me, um, the times I've felt the best about the teams I'm part of are mm-hmm. when I look to the other team members and think, wow, I have so much to learn. And I'm so different. These people are, we have so many different skills and interests and backgrounds. And yeah. it's not a good thing to surround yourself with people who are just like you. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I. <laughs> 2020. Yeah. We're learning oh a lot. God. I have so much to learn. So yeah. much to learn. But, oh, man. Um, I, I love that. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. I. T- <laughs> Todd Clark, whom I've had on this podcast when he was, uh, and he's been a, a wonderful mentor and friend, but when he was sort of mentoring me earlier in my career, he said to me once, uh, and, and I'll preface this by saying he is the first person to downplay his talents. Um, but he said to me, if, if we're ever the smartest people in the room, then we're totally screwed. <laughs> or you're, you should be in a different room. Then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. great. But yeah, I mean, I think the the sentiment exists that, you know, if you're, if you're in a leadership role like yourself and you pull together a team that uh, that encompasses a more vast area of expertise than just you, then that team is going to be successful. Absolutely. And I, I think if you look at different industries, arts management in our arts industry is um, lucky, blessed, fortunate mm-hmm. in that... There's a lot more open heartedness around appreciating differences, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I think we've always been a little bit better at making sure there's diverse voices at a table. Yeah. Not perfect. Still sure. so, so much work to be done. Sure. Um, but yeah. better than a lot, right? Yeah. Well, the willingness is there. I, I agree. I've seen, you know, company culture is so different across so many different industries, right? But I think in arts administration, you know, you can't. You can't want to do something like connect artists and audiences and not have a, at least a, a moderately large amount of empathy in your heart. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. I love that you talk about empathy and 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 the importance of that. Don't we need that right now? Holy Oof. cow. <laughs> it's been a, you know, yeah. even, and I think without getting into politics, sure. um, Hopefully something that's universal is mm-hmm. the need for connection with other humans. And yeah. hopefully something that is something we can agree on is mm-hmm. that compassion mm-hmm. and empathy and valuing the life of, uh, I mean, I, yeah. we're hopefully on a path where tomorrow's better than yesterday when it comes yeah. to appreciating differences and helping support each other yeah. uh, in ways that are important and meaningful, but. Leadership is, you know, whether or not you're talking about president or vice president of the United States or Mm -hmm. the head of the volunteer usher program at a scrappy performing arts center in Lincoln, Nebraska, like everybody who has the opportunity to impact change can be empathetic and a good listener. And, you know, like we all in any of the roles we have in families, in neighborhoods, and it starts by looking inside probably. So, and yeah. for me, what that means is 
trying to shut up and just listen. <laughs> well, well, good thing I brought you on to an interview uh-huh. where you have to talk about yourself. <laughs> I um I want to talk a little bit about your specifically your experience as a woman, uh, uh, because when you talk about you know learning that you need to do X, Y, or Z in order to kind of help those around you, what the big revelation for me early in my career was because I grew up in a house where, and mostly in an environment where women were not treated differently or spoken over, you know, my parents were very um, egalitarian in their decision-making and in their responsibilities. And that was instilled in me, you know, then I found myself in the world years later, sort of not being aware of the discrepancies in the way that we treat women in a, particularly in production, I think it's because the demographics are so, because the demographics of women in production are so much smaller than men in production, you know, there's less voices at the table. And I think it often makes for even an unintended environment where women mm-hmm. are not listened to. Um, so for me, I guess the reason I bring it up is because that was the first sort of like bell in my head that things needed to change or, or my thinking needed to change was, uh, because I wasn't even aware of what my female colleagues were going through, not in the way that I should have been. Yeah. Um, Did you ever have difficulty in your career in that way? The thing I'm reflecting on as you talk about, you know, from a lighting designer standpoint, Mm -hmm. um, in our industry, I I think we have the most work to do in production. Um, And I think you've met an amazing colleague that I had Mm -hmm. um, the opportunity to hire in our director role here in Des Moines. Her name's yeah. Janet Albanese. And oh, yeah. she came into her role as director of production and building services mm-hmm. with a great stage management background. And she'd been a teacher in many different university settings. Yeah, uh, She had a little bit of a learning curve with specifics in terms of carpentry yeah. and lighting and sound audio. Mm-hmm. But um, what she had was soft skills and the ability to listen and to, and yet be firm when she needed to be firm. Sure. And the other things I could train, right? Like I can, I can give you a path towards knowledge on, you know, lighting fixtures and any kind of equipment, but yeah. And I needed her to be a generalist rather than someone who is specifically a great technician. Um, well, stage managers are good at that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But a lot of what comes across my desk from our um, part-time production colleagues, all of which are members of the IATSE, actually mm-hmm. not all, 85% yep. of yep. our part-time colleagues are members of the local. Mm-hmm. And there's still a real um, bias against gender equality in that yeah. world. And it's uh, it's hard. It's just um, right now, still today, we have this situation where wardrobe and hair yeah. are, you know, primarily in terms of making a gender observation. We have a lot sure. of women who identify, um, you know, who are serving in those roles, people yeah. who identify as women. And not a lot of our loaders and our, right. you know, our, our, female. So yeah, we, we got work to do as an industry. And that has to do with letting young people in particular know what opportunities exist 
in the backstage world. I think we're much better front of house than we are back of house. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, it, it comes, a couple things come to mind. One is the, um, the IOTC local in San Francisco has, um, a, some of the most fantastic, uh, female IOTC stagehands I've ever worked with. Uh, but B also, uh, they have done some really, um, purposeful work in the last 10 years, I would say, to try and help the members of that local that are women and transgender feel more, uh, feel heard and, uh, and also feel like their voice matters, their opinion matters and that they're part of the team. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I was, uh, I was thinking about a, a good friend of mine, uh, Alicia Bailey, She's a TD at Beloit College in Wisconsin, and we went to school together. She's also from Nebraska, and uh, I had the opportunity to talk to her class digitally uh, about a month or so ago. When she was in school, she and another outstanding um, young woman, uh, well, uh, at the time, uh, Wendy Beckwith, they were our two sort of technical director students that were doing most of the student leadership. And... Uh, at Beloit College now, currently, you know, Alicia is, uh, she fills a very traditionally masculine role as the technical director. You know, she is every, all things production related for that department, but she's a lady and she loves that it's just, you know, normal in that environment that a woman is filling that role. And Mm -hmm. when she and Wendy were both in school, you know, they were handling a number of different performances uh, and and again, uh, quote unquote, traditionally masculine role. And they were much better than any of the boys that we had. And, you know, and they would make observations about it. And I, you know, and I, I hadn't I had never thought like, oh, TDs are men, you know, in large part because I was going through school with them and they were outstanding TDs. Like, why, why do they have to be men? Like, the answer is they don't. Right. It's. um I think we made a lot of progress as an industry. And I yeah. think if you look at, I, I mean, I have worked as the number two for two men in my three arts admin jobs. Right. Uh, and I think there is that uh, attempt to have gender balance at the top of organizations, but sure. there's so much more to diversity than just the gender thing. And I think right. I want to look ahead and try and make it better as opposed to, to looking behind. We, we had a, learning moment in the mm-hmm. loss of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Oh, uh, I was reading through some of the things that she had to say about gender equality. And yeah. uh, she was asked the question, uh, when will there, the balance be right in terms of women to men on the Supreme court? And her answer was when everyone is a woman, like <laughs> when, when entirely a woman. And it <laughs> makes you think like, um, yeah, it, it's not 50 50. It's, it doesn't, yeah. it shouldn't matter. You know, it's right. changing your, changing your thinking. So, yeah, um, I've heard, I've read that quote too. It, it's, it's partly, it's so much why I love her because her point was like, well, it's been all men for years and nobody questioned that. That's right. We just have a lot of work to do in, yeah. you know, there's the gender piece of it, but there's also just, there's so much more, obviously, in, in yeah. uh, recognizing and being more inclusive. For all the different kinds of diversity we need to lean into. So, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, and the, the observation that I wanted to make about the latter part of my career, particularly in the last 
you know, five, six, seven, eight years is, has been understanding, you know, I, what, uh, uh, kind of like a, uh, <laughs> kind of like a child learning how to crawl and go, oh, okay, well, gosh, women have it harder than me. Okay. So now, you know, and then now it's sort of like, oh, also people of color and also transgender folks and, oh man. Okay. So this is, you know, as you say, there's so many other factions. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you because I find this in my career, if I come across somebody who is a woman or a person of color or gay or, you know, sort of checks any of those boxes, so to speak, um, and and they're fantastic at their job, then I am always sort of like looking out for them, right? But the thing that I will often sort of hit my head against the table on is just by the nature of the industry, I work in a very white-dominated, male-dominated section of the industry. And part of the reason that I try to give opportunities to uh, my female colleagues, my colleagues that are people of color, et cetera, are because I consciously know that that's unbalanced. But I have no answer for or no understanding of how to, you know, how more more women or people of color sort of arrive at the point where they are in my professional circle, you know, because I, I work with, uh, I have worked with thousands of people over the years. And, but if you, if you get to me, typically it means that you've been in the industry for a number of years. How do you, you know, put sort of practical practice into your daily or monthly or, or annual to-do list to, to help with that? Is that why you're so active as a mentor? It's, I suppose it's partly why I try and continue to be serving in roles like being a mentor. But I also, yeah. here in Des Moines, we just finished a 21-day equity challenge that was launched through the United Way. Oh, and organizationally, we participated, individually participated, and I'm mm. part of the Women's Leadership Alliance Nexus yeah. um, and participated through that too. So every day, we were prioritizing 15 to 30 minutes to study and um, just reflect on different parts around EDI work. And wow. for me, a lot of it, a lot of it that resonated for me personally had to do around understanding my own bias because we all have them yeah, and also yeah. understanding our own privilege. And then yeah. to your point, it's about being an ally isn't about, you know, it's, it's not, you can't check a box. It's going right. to be, a, it's an ongoing process mm. of making mistakes and taking accountability because it's how what you've said or done is perceived rather than how it's, yeah. even if your intention is good, you can still yeah. inflict harm uh, where you inadvertently don't mean to. Sure. All that to say, like, it is a conscious effort on my part. And I yeah. think, um, I think we can all do better. And I, gosh, yeah. I can do better. I'm, I'm really inspired and encouraged. I have three daughters and mm. each of them in their own path, I think, uh, challenge me and make yeah. me think differently about uh, decisions I make and biases I hold and how I can be an ally. So sure. I think for me, a little bit of it is that um, identifying with younger people, because I think in many ways they're, <laughs> Less, um, less inclined towards seeing with blinders like you and I may have. I will oh, say sure. because I'm 75 years older than you, but 
no, you're not. I think, <laughs> I think a generation down for me anyway is, yeah. um, is able to think about things a little bit more easier out of the gate without having to just mm. to understand the importance of diversity without having to be told that it's important, you know, just have that inherent, I guess. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the, the sort of the generation closer to Gen Z and sort of younger millennials, I think they have grown up with just an understanding that, that this is a thing, you know, whereas when I was in high school and, uh, and starting my career, I wasn't thinking about gender equality or, uh, any sort of, uh, uh, equity and diversity and inclusion in an active sense. Uh, uh, and it's not because I didn't have the capacity. It's just, it wasn't the, the culture at that time. You mentioned you have three daughters. Uh, and also you mentioned Mike. Um, I ask, I try to ask all my guests about work-life balance because I believe it's important. Um, and particularly for my, uh, female guests, I think, uh, many of them that are, Mothers have, uh, I, I don't want to say s struggled uh, with their careers because of it, but it's completely changed. I think any parent having a child changes their perspective, right? Uh, I'd love to hear about um, how being married and being a mom affected your, not just your career, but your perception of what you do, both in positive and negative ways. Well, I got my three daughters as part of a package deal. Yeah. Um, I've been married once before and I married Mike, uh, mm -hmm. we're going on 16 years ago. And so I got Mike, three daughters and an orange cat as part of the package. <laughs> and as part of that process, I also became part of a mom team and it wasn't oh, yeah. instantaneous, uh, but with time and work and the generous open heart of Mike's first wife and the oh, wow. biological mother of our daughters, Anne, mm -hmm. um, I identify with those three women as I think of myself as their mom and they identify me as part of their mom team, which is such a gift. That's great. When we got married, Cecily was um, just starting high school. So okay. I think she was 15-ish and our Chloe and Mary Claire were um, three years and six years older. Okay. Um, so they were well into their college years at University of Nebraska. Yeah. But Cecily and Mike and I were a family. Uh, when I was, you know, at the lead center and when I was making the decision to move to Minnesota, it was knowing that Cecily was headed to Arizona for her own undergraduate experience. And oh, okay. I mean, I think as the mom of three young women and mm -hmm. as the grandma now of four <laughs> amazing grandkids, wow, I think, great. I know, I think <laughs> it, it does shape who you are and work-life balance is a thing. One of my daughters, Mary Claire, mm -hmm. has, uh, as forever been involved with yoga and okay. by virtue of that she's also involved with um, meditation and mm. she's just she vibrates on a wonderfully high frequency that helps all of us just yeah. in terms of remembering to breathe and yeah. <laughs> um, you know each of my daughters continues to challenge and inspire me in, in different ways but from her I probably get the most reminder about um, work-life balance and yeah. It's really hard in our industry, Matt, and you know this more than most, but mm -hmm. we have an evening and weekend. We are working when other people are having fun. I mean, yeah, yeah. what we do enables people to uh, experience the, the arts, and that usually involves evenings and weekends. So yeah. you got to 
take a walk at 10 a.m. and you gotta, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. you, got, you have to cultivate work-life balance in a way that's different than a lot of other industries. But yeah, yeah, it's it's hard and it's important because some days I'll get to work at, you know, 7:30 and I will leave work at mm-hmm. midnight. You know, yeah. 7:30 in the morning until midnight. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've been really blessed in my life to have Marissa, and and, and there are thousands of reasons as to why uh, she's an outstanding partner, which we won't get into because uh, this podcast is only so long. But uh, <laughs> but one of the re- one of the things that I think drew us together is that we didn't have to explain to the other person what we do. An inherent knowledge was already there. Uh, and and we had worked together for years before we we um, dated and decided to get married. And that leads me to this question, which is: Does Mike? Did Mike know? Was he connected with the industry at all, or uh, was there a learning curve there? I think he wasn't connected with the industry at all. Although he mm-hmm. has always um, been an advocate, an attendee, an audience member. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and. I think it would be hard to have a partner that wasn't at least understanding about the yeah. um, the weird world we find ourselves in. Yeah. Uh, so the, I think it's, I think you're right. I think it's uh, Marissa and Mike are, I, I'll speak for Mike. I don't think mm-hmm. he wanted any other way. I think he's really loved having that one step removed from, uh, from the performing arts world. So. Yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons why I ask is, uh, just for my own personal tally, I find it so funny to see how many of us have partners that are also in the industry or even in similar roles. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, Marissa being an arts admin, I think is uh, is a good like step away. If we were both lighting designers, like we we would be a terrible, yeah. yeah, way too close. Yeah. But at the same token, I know couples that are both lighting designers or or one's a designer and one's an electrician or you know uh and and i can't ever think about that working for me but then again it seems to work for them and so there's this weird sort of like i would say about half of the people that i ask in the industry are like you where you know mike isn't connected but he's appreciative of it and then the other half are like me where uh, or some of my dancer friends in particular is sort of like, well, we were dancing together and then we started right. dating, you know, and now, you know, eight years later, we're married and we have two kids. And, you know, it just sort of part of it's just who you're around, I think. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. And what yeah. you prioritize. So, yeah. Yeah. Did you was it ever difficult for you to prioritize your family or did it was it just sort of it came naturally I had an easier path since I didn't have the girls when they were tiny humans. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I, I have a lot of empathy for young families, especially young families today dealing oh. with the pandemic and homeschooling. And, yeah. you know, I have uh, one colleague, our director of Bellman who has three kids under the age of, I think they're all under seven. Oof. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's just a challenge. I just have yeah. a lot of support and it's, that hasn't been part of, I think I'm getting that now as a grandparent, just seeing yeah. what, my two daughters that are moms themselves are going through. Yeah. It's not easy. No, it's not. And it's not, it's not just about moms. It's about dads. It's about yeah. sisters and brothers and it's right. just been a hard, hard year. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. A hard, <laughs> yes. A hard year for many reasons. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsors. Whoa. 
Hi there. If you're one of the potentially tens of people that listen to this podcast, then you already know that cueing this cheesy bossa nova music means it's time for a brief commercial break. Aw, man, I don't want a commercial right now. Just listen to how much money we spent on that sweet, sweet background music. That's kind of a weird thing to say. It must have been at least $42.17 plus tax. Why is he being so specific about it? Surely you must be saying to yourselves, this Matt Miller guy is a real professional. Actually, I was thinking I might make a sandwich, maybe some ham, or... And my, what an outstanding voice he has. He does kind of sound like that Arby's guy. I could listen to his Malefluous baritone for hours on it. You know, Arby's, we have the meats. Ooh, I really want a sandwich right now. But did you know that Matt Miller is also a real-life professional lighting designer with almost two decades of experience in the industry? And that he offers one-on-one training in Vectorworks Spotlight? I thought he was just on that podcast. Vectorworks Spotlight is the leading CAD software program in the arts and entertainment industry and a crucial part of any lighting designer's workflow. Oh, I see what he's doing here. So, whether you're a student just starting out your Vectorworks journey or a seasoned professional looking to sharpen your drafting skills, why not consider reaching out to book a training session with Matt today? If you can manage making it through one of his podcasts without wanting to Vincent Van Gogh yourself, then chances are you might actually enjoy learning from Matt in a real-life scenario. What does Vincent Van Gogh yourself mean? Believe it or not, after 15-plus years of drafting with Vectorworks, Matt pretty much mostly knows what he's doing. Oh, God. I just Googled it, and it says Vincent Van Gogh cut off his own ear. Details can be found at www.mmiller-lighting.com or feel free to reach out to Matt directly at m.miller.lighting at gmail.com. Really? We're not going to talk about Vincent Van Gogh? We're just going to let that go by with no discussion? And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please use those thumbs to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast directory of your choice. You're sick, buddy. You know that? You are really sick. And now, let's use this smooth bossa nova music to play us back to our show. Let's uh, uh, let's uh, move on to what might be one of our final subjects. Uh, the um, you mentioned earlier, uh, we've talked a little bit about COVID. I would love to know what the timeline was like in Des Moines when things were starting to shut down, and sort of what you are looking at as far as markers that say, well, we can start planning a little bit. When are we going to do live shows? Are we looking at a, at digital anything or, and and when we open up how are we going to open up you know i'm i'm curious about those conversations particularly for someone at your kind of leadership level because it can't be easy but uh i think uh in des moines having somebody like you with empathy and that kind of leadership style probably helps frame the conversation in a productive way to the extent that's possible i suppose but sure um, you know we were together. I can't remember. There's a Monday, March 16th or so. I can't remember right in there that yeah. first, second week of March. Yeah. yeah. And we had a staff meeting where we, we stood in a circle in one of our lobbies mm-hmm. and we just said, it's looking like we need to work from home for a while. And we had yeah. a great, because we'd been doing planning around um, business continuity, thank heavens. So we oh, kind of had existence in place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So people left one day in March mm-hmm. and then 
I didn't see a lot of them. I unfortunately uh, didn't see many of them until last Thursday. So we've had two moments of layoffs. um, And I think this is similar to what a lot of our organizations experienced, but we had, uh, we did get some funding through the PPP and we were able to keep people uh, our, through early summer. And then we had a second impact mm-hmm. that started November 1st. Yeah. And so the group of the, we had a group come through before the November impact mm-hmm. to take things off their desk, you know, oh. frames. and we've gone from 400 and some part-time and 50 full-time wow. to zero part-time and yeah. 24, I think full-time. So, wow, wow. um, it's it's been and myself and the HR manager each time we did the two mm-hmm. step impacts we made phone calls to every person regardless yeah. of their impact because we've all had some impact yeah um, of course we check in our work so of course yeah uh, each round of those calls is pretty dramatic but mm-hmm. um, and we're all doing different things than we used to do and to your point about what we're seeing for how we're gonna get through on the other side, I think Mm -hmm. my role with IBM has been most helpful. And I think a lot of us are leaning into those industry contacts to figure out the practices and what's everybody thinking about electrostatic sprayers and how much fresh air circulation is right for a large venue. And what can you do with the HEPA filter if you have 35 foot, you know, like all the situations are best. Um, We're not having to solve unique problems like we're all as an industry focused on those problems together yeah and i think everybody's finding the answer differently for us i think it's we're definitely doing virtual programming we the international the um ibm has been a great resource but like Mm -hmm. here in iowa we're doing um the iowa high school musical theater work program which is our oversee across the state we're doing a lot of it virtual yeah yeah from teacher math, although I went to an in-person performance of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat last weekend. Wow. First in-person performance since March. Wow. Um, so people are starting to take risks and the lead center in yeah. Lincoln has had some success with in-person events. And, mm. you know, we're learning from those organizations that are early adopters on new practices, I guess. Yeah. I love how you put that, that you're not having to solve unique problems because you have such a strong connection to the rest of the industry. You're able to sort of solve problems, not as an industry, but more collectively than than just specifically in Des Moines. That's right. And I can learn from performing arts centers across the country, but I can also learn from arenas and ballparks and stadiums, which yeah. are, um, you know, we're all dealing with similar challenges. and. You know, for us, it's about keeping our production members safe. And how do you, if you have a touring Broadway show, Mm -hmm. how do you connect a local wardrobe here? You know, these people have to work. They can't social distance if you're doing costume, you know. So it's just thinking through how um, to solve those problems and how that's... I think vaccines will help. I think rapid Mm -hmm. testing will help. I think just having time, more time has to probably pass before we'll really feel comfortable filling an auditorium again with seats. Yeah. We're going to start doing limited in-person events Mm. uh, pretty soon and probably look at social distancing in our main hall 
yeah. in February of 2021. And okay. I don't know when it'll be that we have like 2,700 people in our <laughs> yeah. civic center. But yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned uh, earlier doing a live stream show at the Green Mill. You know, this is a dinky little jazz club in Chicago. Uh, I could not have been happier to be there. And the nostalgia of <laughs> somebody uh, I, I heard somewhere, somebody said somewhere, um, boy, what I wouldn't love to have like, a, you know, a loadout go until 3 a.m. and then have to make a 6 a.m. flight, you know, <laughs> like right. <laughs> uh, I, and, you know, and I think that sentiment is is real, but it must be um more even more poignant for you being in the building where you have the 2700 seats you know it's just different i mean you know yeah. we're all living with different experience and we all would like to have a <laughs> night loadout and yeah yeah you know, we'd love yeah. to rewind the clock and complain about some of the things that we felt <laughs> like were uh, yeah yeah agreed agreed well, um, I think it's encouraging that you're looking at potentially some in-person events in in February, uh, and encouraging to see a, you know a place like the Lead Center um, be maybe a little more cavalier about it. Thank you so much for being here, Laura. Um, you're someone that I have just an in- incredible amount of respect for. Uh, you've got such a great uh, position and have had such a great career, and also just like a wonderful perspective on the work, the industry. Um, also, you're a lovely human being. <laughs> and uh, I'm so thankful that you made the time to come on. And um, uh, I think uh, as we're wrapping up, let's just talk a little bit about uh, if anyone wants to uh, learn about uh, uh, you and or what's going on in Des Moines, uh, where should they go? Yeah. Um, well, Des Moines Performing Arts.org or DMPA.org is mm-hmm. our organizational website. And you can find my contact information from uh, our staff page there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am not great at social media. I have a presence on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Probably yeah. more of a, um, I, I need to. That's one of the many things that my mentees uh, are helping me do better at. But yeah. I, have been grateful for the continued, not as frequent as I'd like connection with you, Matt. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, no, I look forward to having more conversations in the future. And I'm just yeah. so impressed with you. And I'm impressed with as busy as you've been when we've intersected in <laughs> New York City or, you know, in, in your travels with um, the dance companies. It's been so lovely to just get to uh, reminisce a little bit about our overlap in Lincoln. Yeah. And just, uh, we, we have some, a special shared history, so it's good to, uh, we'll, we'll be colleagues in, uh, different ways for many years to come. I've often said yeah. like, someday I'll work for you. And it'll be really <laughs> great. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. You're, you're very kind. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, to me, it's moments like that, that, um, that really sort of bring things full circle and make you feel, if nothing else, secure about your life decisions, <laughs> you know, um, uh, meeting the same great people in different scenarios, uh, after, after, you know, with years in between, it's, it's poignant and, and super exciting for me when, when our paths cross. Well, it's, our circle is close in mm-hmm. that people that commit to work in this industry mm-hmm. are hardwired in a way relationships matter and relationships are important. 
And just the acknowledgement and the shared understanding of the role that the arts can play for us as individuals and for our communities. Yeah. I think it's a tether that's uh, hard to break, thankfully, and really important to honor. Yeah. That's a lovely way to put it. Great. Well, um, in the show notes for the for this episode, uh, we'll put the link for your LinkedIn account Great. and also the link to the Des Moines Performing Arts website in case anyone wants to find out more about you or about what's uh, coming up in Des Moines. Thanks again for being here. And uh, hopefully I'll see you on the other side of this pandemic. You bet. Thanks, man. This has been another episode of Talk About the Industry. I'm your host, Matt Miller. Thanks for listening. If you liked this podcast, please, please, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share them with me directly at talkabouttheindustrypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more about Laura and her work, you can find her professional profile on LinkedIn or you can visit DesMoinesPerformingArts.org. Both of these links you'll find in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of Talk About the Industry.